Christian history is full of unsung heroes, and the world of Bible translation is no exception. Even though books have been written to record amazing things God has done through different missionaries, we often forget about them because they were written so long ago. One such book is 53 Years in Syria, a two-volume work that describes much of the missionary work done in the 1800s and early 1900s in the Middle East, including the most influential complete translation of the Bible into Arabic, which is still used as a standard text today. This is Working for the Word, and I'm Andrew Case. Yalla! Before we get into 53 years in Syria, let me point out that there is actually an entire Wikipedia page dedicated to Bible translations into Arabic. There you can read about more details if you're interested. There we see that part of what appears to be the oldest Arabic Bible or New Testament in existence was discovered in the 19th century at St. Catherine's Monastery. The manuscript, called Mount Sinai Arabic Codex 151, was created in A.D. 867 in Damascus. It only contains the Book of Acts and the Epistles, translated from Aramaic or Syriac. As for the earliest fragment of the Old Testament in Arabic, it's a text of Psalm 77 found in the Umayyad Mosque. Recent research has paleographically dated this manuscript to the late 9th and early 10th century. Now, if we fast forward, in 1671, the Catholic Church published the whole Bible in Arabic at Rome, which was circulated for years, but eventually it was decided that a new translation was needed because it was so full of errors. Now, one of the earliest modern translations to Arabic was done by the Society for Promoting Christian Knowledge. Around 1846, the Society put the Orientalist Samuel Lee in charge of this work. Now, Lee invited to Cambridge the Lebanese scholar Ahmad Faris Shidiak to participate in the translation. Now, the translation of the Bible was published in 1857 and is still considered by some as one of the best Arabic translations of the Bible. Now, let me read to you part of an entry on this translator from the book Essays in Arabic Literary Biography. It says, Al-Shidyak is arguably the most controversial and problematic thinker and writer in Arabic during the 19th century. One of the main problems associated with the discussion of his ideas, especially those outside the sphere of language, is the difficulty of classifying his works. Now, they go on to write that he was born in 1804 in Ashkut, which is a small town in today's Lebanon. The Shidiak family was one of the renowned and rich Maronite families of Mount Lebanon. But some of them were rebellious or made unwise decisions concerning their alliances with the many contenders of power, which led in some cases, like that of Al-Shidiak's grandfather, Butrus, to tragic ending. However, the incident that had the greatest impact on the young Faris was the conversion of his brother, Assad, to Protestantism. 
Fadis grew disgusted with the Maronite church and became a Presbyterian in 1825 and left for Egypt. He lived in Egypt until 1834, and during his stay there, he studied Islamic sciences with renowned scholars and taught Arabic to American missionaries. Now, after all of that, he went to help Dr. Lee with this translation of the Bible into Arabic. And although Shidyak had many issues and differences with Dr. Lee relating to the translation, especially as pertains to using terms closer to Quranic and classical Arabic, which Dr. Lee rejected and preferred terms associated with Syriac and Hebrew, many commentators think that this was the best Arabic translation of the Bible and that it surpassed the one that was made by Smith and Van Dyke with the help of Butrus al-Bustani and Nasif al-Yaziji, which is the one used by most Protestant churches in the Arab world. It seems that al-Shidyak's critical attitude toward the church establishment and his later conversion to Islam has contributed to the animosity toward his better translation by the Eastern churches. End quote. Now, I totally get that there may be some terms and names in what I just read that you may not be familiar with. But don't worry, those things will eventually become clearer. Now, when I first set out to do this series, I imagined that I would focus exclusively on Bible translation into Arabic. But the more I read about the events, culture, and people surrounding the history of Arabic Bible translation, the more I wanted to share it with you. It's absolutely fascinating. And many times, stranger than fiction itself. Now, to begin our dive into this world, let me introduce the author of 53 Years in Syria, Henry Harris Jessup. He was born in 1832 and died in 1910. He was an American Presbyterian missionary who devoted his distinguished career to evangelical missionary work in Syria, part of which later became Lebanon in 1943. He was born at Montrose, Pennsylvania, and attended Yale University. He graduated from Yale in 1851 and from Union Theological Seminary in 1855, at which point he was officially ordained. He entered the Foreign Missionary Service of the Presbyterian Church and then spent his first four years of service in what is today Tripoli, Lebanon, devoting much time to learning Arabic. Now, Jessup also authored numerous books about Syrian history, which culminated in the work for which he is best known, 53 Years in Syria, published in 1910, a two-volume memoir and historical account of his life there. And now he is buried in Beirut. Now, some of his other books include the following, The Women of the Arabs, Syrian Home Life, The Mohammedan Missionary Problem, The Greek Church and Protestant Missions, the Setting of the Crescent and the Rising of the Cross, Kamil, a Muslim convert. So, what I'm going to do now is essentially weave together many different extended excerpts from his first volume of 53 Years in Syria. If you're interested in the book, it's freely available from archive.org because it's in the public domain. Now, at times it may feel like we're jumping around a lot, but I think through these various vignettes, we'll gain a more full-orbed idea of what the world was like in this part of the Middle East during the birth of the most influential Bible in Arabic. Now, let's start in a somewhat unexpected place. In my view, one of the most revealing things about a culture or religion is the way women are treated. So, this will give us a picture, a little 
taste of what that world was like in relation to how women were perceived. So let's start with this word from Jessup about his own experience of this. He says, the state of woman was pitiable in the extreme. The first missionaries could not hear of a woman or girl in the land who could read. Mohammedanism had blighted womanhood and driven her behind the veil into the harem. Oriental Christian women dared not appear unveiled in the streets for fear of vile abuse and even violence from the lords of the land. Muslims would not mention the name of woman in conversation without begging pardon from all present by saying, in essence, may God exalt you above the contamination of so vile a subject. They would use the same phrase in speaking of a hog or a dog or a filthy shoe. By degrading woman, the Muslims had degraded themselves and lowered the whole tone of society. No man calling at a Mohammedan house could ever see the face of a woman, nor would he dare ask after the health of the wife or the mother, sister, or daughter. A young man never saw the face of his bride until after the marriage ceremony was over. Mutual acquaintance before marriage was not necessary and was impossible. Polygamy, the upas tree, which is a poisonous tree, of Islamic society, had corrupted all moral ideas and despoiled the home of everything lovely and of good report. The Quran enjoined wife-beating in Surah 438. End quote. Now, the further significance of this treatment of women will become clear as we learn more about what the missionaries did later on. Changing gears, Jessup describes three earlier missionaries who set the stage for a Bible translation to enter the Arab world. You've probably never heard of these amazing men, so let me share some snippets of them with you. The first is Jonas King, whom Jessup calls the Apostle of Modern Greece. He was born July 29th, 1792, in Hawley, Massachusetts. His father was a Christian farmer. Under his instruction, Jonas read the Bible through once between the ages of four and six, and then once yearly to the age of 16. His conversion was at the age of 15, and without funds or aid, he determined on an education and learned the English grammar while hoeing corn, and he read the 12 books of Virgil's Aeneid in 58 days and the New Testament in Greek in six weeks. So that's just a little snippet to give you an idea of the caliber of men that were being sent to the Middle East back then to give the best years of their life and die young, many of them before they reached 40. Then we have another man by the name of Levi Parsons. It was written of him, his character was transparent and lovely. Few of those distinguished for piety leave a name so spotless His disposition inspired confidence and gave him access to the most cultivated society. He united uncommon zeal with the meekness of wisdom. His consecration to the service of his divine master was entire. His two years of service were years of struggle with disease, incessant study, indefatigable labors in traveling and preaching to the people. His grave no man knoweth. Now, Jessup also tells us about Pliny Fisk, a linguist and preacher. 
He could preach in Italian, Greek, and French, and had just begun a regular Arabic Sabbath service and had nearly completed an English-Arabic dictionary. When he was called to his rest, October 23rd, 1825, age 33 years. Now, when a missionary got to the Middle East back then, how did they go about learning Arabic? Well, we get a little window into this by the author of the book. He says, my first duty was language study. We had no good dictionaries. My principal one was Freytag's lexicon in four volumes, the meanings all given in Latin. And studying Arabic with such helps was a weariness to the flesh. We also had little reading primers and reading books with the geography and arithmetic published at the American Press. The chief difficulty was obtaining suitable teachers. I began Arabic writing with Abu Salim, and during my six months' visit to America the following year, I kept up Arabic correspondence with him. But it should be stated that an Arabic letter in those days consisted of three parts. A long, flowery, poetical introduction covering one-third of the page, a similar conclusion covering the last third, and a brief letter in the middle. Important business, however, was written in a postscript diagonally across the right-hand bottom of the page, and this was the part generally read by the receiver, end quote. So yeah, that's a great reason to be thankful for all the advantages that we have today for learning languages. Now let's switch gears again and get a lay of the land as far as the different religions that were all around them in Syria. So we have this crazy mix of Druses, Maronite Catholics, and Muslims. And then you have this tiny minority of Protestant influence. So first, let's learn about the Druses. The Druses are neither Muslim nor Christian, says Jessup but a peculiar secret mystic sect having no priesthood and no assemblies for worship, claiming to be Unitarians or believers in one God, infinite, indefinable, incomprehensible, and passionless, who has become incarnate in a succession of ten men, the last of whom was the mad Egyptian caliph Hakim Bamir Ilah, who was assassinated, A.D. 1044. They are more of a political than a religious society. It is lawful for them to believe in the religion of any sect among whom they dwell. Among the Muslims, they are Muslims. Among the Jews, Jews. Among the Greeks, they are Greeks. Among the Romanists, they are good Papists. And among the Protestants, they are evangelical biblical Christians. In politics, they look to the English for protection and have always favored the American schools. They are courteous, hospitable, industrious, temperate, and brave. The okal, or initiated class, use neither tobacco nor liquors of any kind, and anyone leaving their sect for Christianity would be disinherited. Now, what about the Maronites? Jessup calls them a Romish sect in abject obedience to their priests, bishops, and patriarch, at that time an illiterate people with a well-trained priesthood. The sect is of great antiquity and for centuries maintained its independence in the heights of northern Lebanon against Muslims, Greeks, and Bedouin Arabs. In the 12th century during the Crusades, they accepted the primacy of the Pope and have ever since been devoted to Rome. 
The patriarch was, in the beginning of modern missionary work in Syria, the unscrupulous enemy of light and of God's word, claiming the right to arrest, imprison, and even put to death any Maronite reading the Bible or leaving the sect. He caused the death of Assad Shidiak in 1829, the first Protestant martyr in Syria in modern times. These oriental hierarchs are avaricious, haughty, and full of political intrigue, encouraging their people to oppress other sects. Their policy is to keep the people in ignorance, educating only those in training for the priesthood. Now, besides these three big religions, you also have Roman Catholics, and then you have Jews, and then you have this small sect called the Nusaidi. Now, they originated from Shia Islam, and they basically took mystic elements from all kinds of different religions and mixed them together. And I want to read you a really interesting testimony that Jessup shares in his book about somebody who was converting away from the Nusaidi religion. He decided that there must be a better religion because he saw a bunch of holes in what people were saying. And so he decided that there must be a better religion than this and all of its absurdities. And he went to a Muslim sheikh as a seeker after Islam. They read together the Quran and the sheikh explained. He became a Mohammedan about a month when, as he said, he found in the Quran 300 lies and 70 great lies, so that he was unwilling to remain longer a Muslim. He then studied the books of the Greek Orthodox Church, turned Greek, and was baptized by a merchant of Adana. Entering on this new faith, he frequented the church and was horrified to find that, though professing to worship the true God, the Greeks actually worshipped pictures. Attending the Mass, it was explained to him that the priest blessed the wafer or bread, whereupon it was transformed into the perfect humanity and divinity of Christ. What, said he, does it become God? Yes, certainly. And then what do you do with it? We eat it. Does the priest eat it? Yes. What? Make a god and then eat their god? This was too much. He said he had read in an old Arabic version of Robinson Crusoe about men eating one another, but here were people eating their god. Finding Christianity to be of such a nature as this and knowing of no better form of it, he decided to become a Jew, as the Jews read the Old Testament in the original Hebrew. And all sects acknowledge the Old Testament as true. For four years, he continued a professed Jew and learned to read the Hebrew of the Old Testament and the Talmud. He was at first greatly troubled, lest God could not admit a heathen among his chosen people. But says he was quite relieved when he read that Ruth and Rahab, both heathen women, were among the progenitors of David. Two things led him at length to leave the Jewish faith that is, the absurdities and blasphemies of the Talmud, in which he read that God himself studies the Talmud three hours every day, and also the prophecies regarding the coming of Christ. He then decided to become a Christian again, hoping to do so without adopting picture worship and transubstantiation. As he was baptized before by a layman, he now applied to a priest, but found no special difference, as he was obligated to worship pictures again, and, as he said, to eat his God. He could not remain a Greek. 
He had tried paganism, Judaism, and Islamism in vain, and now began to look for something else. The Greeks had told him of the quote-unquote religion of the Anglis, or Protestants, and that they were a heretical sect who denied the resurrection, and he wrote a tract against their heresy, bringing proofs from scripture for the doctrine of the resurrection. A Greek from Beirut, living in Adana, told him that there were learned Greeks in Beirut who could convince him of the truth of transubstantiation and the propriety of picture worship. While visiting this man, he saw a book lying on the table, which he took up and began to read. It was a copy of the famous work on the papacy in Arabic by Dr. Mikael Meshaka of Damascus. He was so absorbed in the book that the Greek, who had bought it for his own use against the Catholics and not to make Protestants, became alarmed and took it from him. He then went out determined to get it for himself and finally found Reverend Mr. Coffing, American missionary, and Adador, the native helper, whom he had regarded before as Sadducees, and obtained the book. He was delighted. Here was Christianity, which neither enjoined picture worship nor taught transubstantiation. He became a Protestant at once and wrote a letter to Dr. Mashaka in Damascus thanking him for having written such a work. The Mohammedans and Nusairiya were now leagued against him and took away his wife and child and property. He was thrown into prison and two Muslim sheikhs came and tried to induce him to become again a Muslim or Nusaidi. They pictured before him the sensual delights of paradise, but he replied that they were welcome to his share of their paradise. He was rooted in the religion of Christ and would not leave it. Eventually, he was killed by the sect that he left at first. They buried him alive, and then some days later, the body was exhumed. They cut out his tongue and preserved it in a jar of spirits. And in their gatherings, the sheiks would place this ghastly and gruesome relic on the table and pour upon it their weird imprecations, cursing it and consigning him to the torments of the damned. Heavy persecution also came from the side of the Greek Orthodox. There were a couple missionaries who had labored for five years and only had two converts to show for all of their labors. One of them was named Miriam, and she was dragged through the streets by the hair of her head because she would not worship the pictures of the Greek church. Another fascinating anecdote of someone's conversion comes from a Maronite student Salim Tawil. He had this remarkable experience. He entered the Abbe Seminary and he was a devout Maronite, full of suspicion of Protestantism, and had never had a Bible in his hands. In a few weeks, he began to think and inquire, and for several successive nights had trances, which excited greatly all the teachers and pupils. He was heard talking aloud after midnight. There was a dim light in his room, and the student sprang up and came to his bed. He was sitting upright, his eyes wide open, but he did not notice them. He went on with his preaching. He seemed to be addressing Maronite priests and monks and preaching free salvation in Christ. After waiting for their reply, he said, You have now found Christ. Pass on the next 
then he preached to another and another imaginary convert, telling of his own spiritual change and experience and joy in his Savior, the great change he had met, to the amazement of his fellow students who stood listening and who tried in vain to rouse him from his trance. His language was eloquent and profoundly spiritual, but the next morning he had not the slightest recollection of what had occurred. After that day, he was a consistent praying Christian, surprising all by the profoundness and clearness of his spiritual views, and was full of zeal for the salvation of his fellow countrymen. Now, one really interesting thing that I had no idea existed was that Muslims themselves have also, like Roman Catholics, worshipped relics. This is what Jessup writes. In 1862, the city of Beirut received from the sultan three hairs from the beard of the prophet Muhammad to be placed in one of the mosques. The military was called out and marched with music and banners to escort the wonderful and sacred gift of the sultan, while crowds of long-robed Muslims and filthy dervishes and sheiks joined the procession which bore the holy relics to the great mosque. The whole Muslim population was excited And this was all done to counteract the rapidly increasing European and Christian influence in Beirut, which is leaving the Muslims in the minority. Some Muslims ridiculed them as spurious. Others insisted that the use of any relics of any kind is forbidden in the Quran and say, are we to imitate the Christians in creature worship? In 1890, two hairs from the same beard were sent to a mosque in Tripoli and received by the populace with frantic demonstrations bordering on idolatry. So, Muslims, as well as Maronites and Greeks, hold to the veneration of the hair, teeth, and bones of their saints. Now, another major event that factors into this whole story of the Bible getting into Arabic, at least this most influential Bible, is a massacre that happened, which sent shockwaves throughout the country for years. Basically, what these missionaries witnessed were armed bodies of druses marching from village to village, singing the following song, How sweet, how sweet to kill the Christians. They were seeking to kill as many Maronites and Greek Christians as possible. And what's crazier about this is that these people trusted the Protestant missionaries more than anyone else in the midst of this terror. Villages were burned, and these people brought their valuables, gold, silver, precious jewels, to the missionaries and deposited them there for safekeeping in the middle of that horrific massacre. And all the while, they're trying to translate the Old Testament. I mean, can you imagine? Jessup writes, To add to the gloom of the year 1861, which was the year of that massacre, the Civil War began in the United States between the federal government and the southern seceding slave states. Financial ruin seemed impending over the northern states. Churches and missionary societies were staggered and crippled. The Board of Missions sounded the note of warning and retrenchment. No boarding schools could be reopened, no new books published, no new missionaries sent out. I just cannot imagine how difficult it would be as a missionary, depending on people back in your home country, to have an actual civil war break out. Definitely a massive test of faith. 
Now, before we wrap this up, I began this whole series of vignettes talking about the treatment of women. And I did that because this treatment was totally reversed and began to change because of the impact of Protestant missionaries in the Middle East. They were the first people to found schools for girls. This revolutionized the cultures around them. And there are many, many women, single women, married women, who gave their lives, some of them who died young of disease, who came to teach and run these schools and make it possible to lift women out of ignorance and oppression. And this wasn't just done in the Middle East. This has been the impact of biblical Christianity all over the world over the centuries, and it hasn't been in vain. If you look at the statistics now, the difference in education between men and women is only one year difference. Men on average in the world receive 10 years of education. Women receive nine. That's such a staggering advance and something to be really, really grateful for. Now, I want to end this by reading the following excerpt from Jessup. He says, foreign missionaries have moved mountains, grain by grain, rock by rock, by steady work, year after year, toiling, delving, tunneling, the giant mountain obstacles have been gradually melted away. After years of silent, unseen, prayerful, agonizing work, suddenly a new version of the sacred scriptures is announced, and millions find the door of knowledge and salvation suddenly opened to them. It is easy to read in a Bible Society report that the Bible has been translated into Mandingo for 8 millions, into Punjabi for 14 millions, into Marathi for 17 millions, into Cantonese for 20 millions, into Japanese for 50 millions, into Bengali for 39 millions, into Arabic for 50 millions, into Hindi for 82 millions, and into Mandarin Chinese for 200 millions. But who can comprehend what it all means? To those who claim that missionaries are or should be only men who are failures in their home country, who are unable to fill home pulpits, but are good enough for Asiatic or African mission work, such a statement must be an unsolved and unsolvable riddle. Translation is an art, a science, one of the most difficult of all literary undertakings. It is easier to compose in a foreign tongue than to translate into it, adhering conscientiously to the meaning, yet casting it so perfectly into the native idiom as to conceal the fact of its foreign origin. Who is sufficient for these things? Translators of the scriptures are called of God, as was Aaron. Aaron.